Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Black woman. Beautiful. Powerful. Resilient female of African descent with skin kissed by the sun. Conversation. A talk, especially an informal one, between two or more people in which news and ideas are exchanged. We love being black women. Black women are ambitious. Black women are confident. Black women are diligent. We are tenacious. We walk out of our houses put together. We are many shades and personalities of fabulous. But we as black women don't talk about our dilemmas, current events, and what's going on every day that affects us. So... We created this podcast as a way to laugh together, cry together, and have an open conversation about life as black women. Oh, that's deep. Black Women Conversation. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Janine. How's your week been? better i mean you know i'm crippled right now i got this limp in my leg you know i got the boot on i mean it's been better i mean i way better than last week when i was literally hurting after falling down the stairs this week i can actually hobble around i took my office to top golf for our christmas celebration and i beat them right i beat them in a boot. So I told them, uh, don't ever talk about me. I'm coming for all y'all. Boot and all. I beat them. And the second game, it was weird because for some reason, I guess the sensors on the golf balls, on mine, only on mine, wasn't picking up. So I was hitting the, ho- the balls in the holes and I wasn't getting no points. They were like, oh, Dr. Plenty, oh, we didn't see the ball go in. But then when it started happening to them, all of a sudden, oh, the sensors must be broken. <laughs> really? Ain't that how it always happens though? Mhm. That's funny. Are you always that competitive? No, uh-uh. I like to have fun. I'm I'm competitive when it matters. And that time it mattered, right? Because I had something to prove because I had the boot on my foot. So they were talking mad smack. You know those people when you hit the ball, they want to say something. Like if you went bowling or you play golf, like you're supposed to let the person concentrate, right? Mm-hmm. Like don't try to attack them. That's, that's a, you're doing the job of the enemy right there. So they're like, ah, yeah, you're not going to hit it in. Talking mad trash. Now, when you talk trash, I get competitive. So I had to let them know. It's funny because I saw, I'm assuming one of your um, coworkers that hit the ball and it like literally just went off the ledge. It didn't. She get. I don't like ugly. <laughs> <laughs> You have to share it with the listeners. It's so funny. Like you have to see it. Nicole looks all, like, first of all, from the pictures, you would never know that Nicole has a boot on. So I listeners had to ask Nicole if she went and actually got imaged and she did. And we are proud of Dr. Plenty for going to get her foot imaged because we were really concerned. 
Let me tell you, after last week's episode, she said that she was going to get her foot imaged after we recorded. And after we recorded, there was no imaging. So I was patient. I was patient. I went the next day, though. I gave you some time. You went and got imaged. And now you have a boot on your foot. And I'm glad that you are on the road to recovery. Because I was a little concerned there for a second. I was concerned that you would be walking around with a swollen ankle, swollen foot. Like, oh, it's okay. It'll work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, so when you can't walk, I mean, literally, I couldn't walk. So mm-hmm. I had to do something and I wasn't going to walk around with a crutch. And then somebody said, oh, you should get one of the little scooters and scoot around. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm just going to get a boot. It's fine. I, I can get a boot. It's all right. I mean, I'm here for the scooter, though, Nicole. The scooters are, uh, are a vibe because I remember when I had to have a boot on my foot for six months, there was no scooter. So scooters are a vibe now, let's just say. Just, if you have to have one. This, uh, if you have to have one, I guess the scooter can be a vibe, okay? There's a friend of the podcast, Tiffany, who had a scooter and a boot, I believe. I think she had a boot. She'll correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but she had a scooter, I remember, because she was like scooting around with this scooter. And I was thinking, golly, you got a scooter. But you don't realize, like, you can't walk up the stairs in a scooter. And the boot, I can literally, you know, struggle my way up. But you can't do that in a scooter. You have to find an elevator in a scooter. But I kind of think that that's the point. Like when you're recovering from an injury, I don't really think that walking upstairs should be your priority. Well, tell that to my job because I had to go and visit another clinic. And well, it's not visit. I actually had to work in another clinic this past week. And I had to park on the second floor. There's no elevator. So I had to literally hobble down in this boot. Had I had a scooter? What would I have been doing? Sliding down the ramp? I would have, a car would have hit me. It would have been bad. And then I went to another event on behalf of Pregnancy Pearls where I gave away some cute little uh, door gifts. And there was no elevator there either. Let me I had you. to hobble up the stairs. And I was thinking, how are pregnant women going to get up these stairs? I was just thinking the same thing. Like, how are the medical facilities not handicap friendly? Well, this was a 3D, 4D imaging studio. So it wasn't technically, you know, medical. It's more entertainment, um, ultrasounds. And there usually is during regular business hours an elevator. But for some reason, um, that door was locked this past weekend. Mm. Yeah. So I hobbled up the steps. Well, I hope that you're going to put your foot up after we record because it seems like you've been a little active on this booted foot, ma'am. It is already up. I have it right there on the ottoman. It's up. I'm glad. So, Janine, what have you been doing this week? Um, so I have my week has actually kind of been boring, but there's something really interesting that I've seen. It's like a trend of sorts. Right. So I'm going to blame this on Grey's Anatomy because I'm obsessed with Grey's Anatomy and have been since it came out. I think that's the like you should have been a doctor in me. Right. You can go back. Oh, uh, ma'am, I'm too old for that right now. But OK, Um. So I'm curious because on Grey's Anatomy, they made reference to um, basically like you're supposed to, because you're in a pandemic, find a sex partner of sorts, right? That you are going to be consistent with. And I'm assuming that that's not for you and I because we're married and we have a sex partner that we're consistent with, right? But like for the average person who might not be in a relationship and or might be like in between relationships, Find some someone consistent, right? I'm not sure how factual that is off the TV show. However, several of my friends have got it single friends. So let me be very clear about this. They can do what they want because they single. 
have gotten into this like virtual reality sex. And I don't really know how I feel about it, right? Like, I'm all about exploring your sexuality and doing what makes you comfortable. However, I just can't, maybe I just can't fathom how it works. I'm just trying to imagine it right now. I mean, maybe you and I have not been married that long. And I know that like the internet is has been around for some time, but I'm sitting here trying to think like, how exactly do you do that? Because when I think about virtual reality, I think about those big old goggles that you have on and you can get on the bike and you can create your own virtual reality, right? Like you're like biking on another planet or like you're in Napa Valley sipping wine, but you're really exercising. I'm thinking about that. So I'm wondering, does it involve goggles or some type of like virtual reality glasses? Or are we just talking about having phone sex, but on a video? Well, so that's what, so I think that there are various, um, I don't know what you would describe it, like various versions of what virtual reality sex is. So my curiosity peaked, right? And a couple of things I wanted to know. One, I wanted to know, is this 100% mental? Like, am I creating the virtual reality? Or are there scenes? Like, how does that work, right? Because like, like you, I'm thinking of like biking through the canyon, right? And I'm like, oh, wait, like, is there a scene set that I get to see and then it stimulates my like sensory nerves or whatever? I don't know. How does this work? Right. However, good old clubhouse. Shout out to clubhouse. <laughs> so apparently, and I'm about to pull it up because of course I can't remember it off the top of my head, but apparently there's this, um, there's a something that you can purchase. It's called, and I'm not promoting it. These people are not paying us, but it's called a lush two bullet, right? And apparently it's controlled by your cell phone and there's no radius to the control. So the concept of it is, is that you text the code to someone that you would like to have control it. I'm going to show you a picture. So you mean to tell me this is like, it looks like not, this, Nicole. That's just a regular vibrator. I don't understand. But it's not because you're not the one controlling it. Someone else is controlling it. Yeah, but that's just like, oh, if me and my husband are in bed and there's a remote control to the vibrator, like he can't have the remote. I mean, that's the same thing. Uh-uh. Somebody else can control this from Washington State. That's crazy. So, that's so that means you have to know your virtual reality buddy, though. Well, of course. But again, I'm just trying to figure out how do these things work? If anybody that it, if any of you all that are listening can give me some insight on how this works, because look, I'm not, I'm not here. Like I said, I'm married. So that is not my thing, but I'm just saying it could be, you know, spicy, like your husband at work, like, Hey, text this number. And then all of a sudden get a surprise. I, I wouldn't be mad at that. So I'm just trying to figure out how this virtual reality sex thing works just so that, that I can be knowledgeable. Let's just say it's research for the podcast. That is definitely research for the podcast. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking like, um, if I'm at work or, you know, how do you know when to like, hopefully you can text that person and tell them when you're available, because hopefully that person, when they have the code, they won't just randomly start <laughs> doing whatever, but surely you're not walking around with this thing in your vagina. I mean, this looks like a rabbit. This is huge. So, um, hopefully you're not just walking around with it and get, get a surprise. But if you're at home, that will be something totally different. And then what's the male pair with that. I mean, this looks like a female rabbit. So what do they just have to do? Jerk off with their hand? That's not good. I don't know. Maybe they have like, 
Right. <laughs> what are those things called? They're like cu- suction cups. Those things. I think that they have a, a male version of this suction cuppy thing. And you send your code. I just don't. Here's the thing. I've never heard of this before. And there's not much in the world. I'm not super smart. Well, I am smart, but not super. You are smart. But not super smart. Like, I'm not like top 1% smart. I'm very intelligent, but not top 1% smart. I know my limitations. But there are very few things that I haven't heard of. And this was one of them. Shout out to Clubhouse. Clubhouse will put you onto some things. I just was like, I just need to know how this works. I'm just curious. Maybe we can get a sex therapist on and they can tell me how do I go to sex therapy school? Number right. Because Janine, if y'all don't know, wants to be a sex therapist. Okay. She will be one in the next two years. Give her two years. So that's number one. And then number two, I'd like to know how these things work. And that sounds like a, a dope market to get into, Nicole. Like, I'm just saying, maybe we create some like virtual reality toys. Hey, oh, that's the virtual reality toys coming coming soon hey don't be surprised when it comes up and we're advertising on social media don't talk about us just purchase it okay and no, because don't give us shame because right. guess what y'all do it too and i know we have a lot of christian listeners because we're christian hey but you know what we're married and if we can do something to help us spice up these marriages hey we'll do it and we're just trying to make sure you guys are having your holiday rendezvous right Amen. Why, why do the single people get to have all the fun we can and, have fun. And let's remember that baby Christians get here somehow, okay? That's let's right. Not, let's not pretend like God did not make us be able to enjoy our reproductive organs. And then once you get married, you can enjoy them guilt-free. Because y'all remember, you listen, I, I was no saint before I got married. But I know that when I was dating and got to the serious point, I was like, Lord, please don't strike me down. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, it was like that level of guilt you have before you get married and you know you're doing some scandalous stuff you shouldn't be doing. I I know I wasn't the only one. We need to talk about this. This needs to be a whole nother podcast episode. Let's put a pin in that and we'll talk about it later. So Janine, what's on your timeline this week? Okay, so um, I'll just get right into it. Brandon Bernard, was convicted of kidnapping and killing two youth ministers, Todd and Stacy Bagley, in 1999. At the time, he was 18 years old. He was sentenced to death and is set to be executed on December the 10th, 2020, which is the day that this episode is released. This would mean that he would be executed for acting as an accomplice in a murder rather than being executed for actually being a murderer. There are a lot of details in the story, so I'm just going to start the case from the beginning before this all happened. So Brandon Menard was raised in Texas near Fort Hood military base, where his mom was an army nurse. It's said that his father was abusive to both he and his mother, and he was known to have a very hot temper. Um, Also, his father had a difficult time keeping jobs, so he often bounced between jobs, and he was not the sole breadwinner of the family. His mother was. At the age of 12, shortly before his parents' divorce, Brandon himself recalls his father hitting his mother in the chest and spraying her with mace right after she had open-heart surgery. As I said, the parents divorced when he was 12, but Brandon often worried about his father because his father struggled to take care of himself. He really never kept a job. He went from house to house, sometimes being homeless. And later he contracted HIV. 
Brendan's mother vividly recalls Brendan going through a, what she now refers to as a state of depression, but she didn't really know at the time what it was. When his parents split, Brendan kind of stepped up to be the man of the house to help his mother take care of his younger siblings. And while his academics slipped, his teachers noted that he was always very mannerable and respectful, but unfortunately, he started to get into some minor trouble. It appears that he was introduced to this, like, troubled life by a cousin that moved in um, to his mother's house. And his cousin even says that Brandon really wasn't the trouble kind. Like, he really just was about helping people. So his cousin often burglarized homes, and Brandon didn't really assist him, but he would drive because Brandon had a car. The cousin basically said that Brandon wasn't a thief and he wasn't into any kind of crime, but he knew that the cousin needed the money and needed the help. So, you know, he assisted the best way that he knew how. He and his cousin got caught for their, you know, for burglarizing homes and he spent a little stint in juvie. But all the while, he didn't forget where he came from. He was an active member of his church, which he was seven-day Adventist. He had aspirations of going to college, and he wanted to become a neurosurgeon. On June 20th, 1999, a series of events turned his entire life upside down. This horrendous day started with a plot to rob someone to get money. Three of Brandon's friends came up with this plan, and the plan was for them to go to a location saying that they were stranded to bum a ride. Once they found someone to, you know, a good Samaritan to pick them up, they were going to demand that they give them their ATM and their PIN code, and they were going to rob them so that they could get money. These friends were Christopher Vialva, Christopher Lewis, and Tony Sparks. They brought this idea to Brandon Bernard and Terry Brown. It seemed that the only reason that they brought the idea to Brandon specifically was because Brandon had a car and they needed a plan to get away. Brandon Bernard and Terry Brown were to sit in the car and wait while this was happening. So on June 21st, the teens found Todd Bagley, who was using a payphone outside of a convenience store. They said that they needed a ride. Todd, who was a youth minister, offered them a ride with his wife and they held him up. While Brandon and Terry were supposed to be waiting in the car, it appears that they got bored or some sorts or distracted. So they had gone into a place to go play video games. When they came out, the original three were gone. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea that they had been picked up. They did not know anything about Todd and Stacey Bagley. The only thing that they knew was their three friends were gone. But Vialva was executing the plan, right? So as I said, it was Vialva, Lewis, and Sparks. But Vialva seemed to be the, like, ringleader of this, right? So he was executing the plan. He planned to rob the couple, which he did. He got their ATM card and, I believe, some jewelry from Stacy, And he stuffed them in the trunk of their own car. He got literally only $100, which is ridiculous. And he spent six hours driving around Texas with them in the trunk of their car. Brandon later found out and he met up with the group later that evening. They said it was about seven or eight o'clock at night. So we're talking hours later. Um, and the group came up with a plan to abandon the car with the Bagleys inside and to call the police. Vialva did not agree with this plan because he said that his fingerprints were all over the car. So 
they were a little skeptical. You know, he was a little skeptical. They were a little skeptical as to what he was doing, but they said that they never thought that he planned to kill them. They, they knew that he, you know, had an idea of maybe like destroying the evidence, but they, they hadn't, no one had any intentions of, of killing them. Vialva even gave Brown money to go buy lighter fluid to, um, torch the car. But the plan was to let the Bagleys go. Bialva gave Brown the money to buy lighter fluid and the group took both cars, meaning the car that the Bagleys were stuffed in, as well as Brandon's car that would be then used as the quote unquote getaway car. Um, and they drove it to Belton Lake Recreation Area, which is a isolated, like secluded location on Fort Hood. I'm going to give a little bit of trigger warning because um, the details that are following can be a little bit disturbing and can be triggering for some. Once um, Bialva was there, he shot the Bagleys in the head, killing both of them. And Bernard and Brown poured the lighter fluid all over the car. And it was said that Bernard lit the car on fire, even though no one actually saw it occur. So out of the five boys, no one actually saw who lit the car on fire. They just assumed that it was Brandon Bernard. On June 13, 2000, a jury of 11 white people and one black person found Bernard and Vialva guilty of carjacking, first-degree murder, aiding and abetting, and conspiracy to commit murder. All five boys were convicted. Lewis and Brown were sentenced to 20 years. Sparks was sentenced to life in prison. However, that was overturned because um, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for a minor to be sentenced to life in prison. So he is still serving 35 years. And Bernard and Vialva were sentenced to death because at the time of the crime, they were 18 and 19 years old. And therefore, they were considered legally adults. Because of the location of the crime, it being on Fort Hood and Fort Hood being federal property, this became a federal case. September 24th of this year, Vialva was executed. And on December 10th, 2020, the day that this episode comes out, Brandon Bernard is set to be the next federal inmate to be executed. This would make him the 16th person to be executed this year in the United States and the ninth federal execution this year. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. Five of the nine jurors Brandon Bernard and the prosecuting attorney that upheld the death penalty all believe that he should not be put to death. And here are some of the reasons why. Bernard was appointed an attorney that had no federal death penalty experience prior to his case. The lawyer also had the court appoint his son to be on the case as well. Both attorneys on Bernard's legal team spent a fraction, 20% of the time, on his case that average death penalty cases take. Bernard and Vialba were put on trial together in a joint trial, making it appear that they were equally culpable for the crimes when they were not. One of the jurors even noted that he thought that Bernard's case was prejudiced by the fact that he was a co-defendant rather than being on trial by himself. His lawyers never even tried to get him an individual separate trial. There were also reports of mishandling of evidence, poor scientific practices. I mean, this case was just a mess, it appears, from the beginning. And later, it was even said that the state withheld evidence that could have helped Bernard be proven innocent. 
I think the most damaging evidence or the most damning evidence, I should really say, was presented in trial from the medical examiner who claimed that Stacy's autopsy showed that she wasn't killed by the bullets that Vialva shot, but rather that she was killed by the fire when Brandon Bernard set the car on fire. Um, he cited that there was soot in her lungs and therefore she must have been alive when the car was set on fire, which would mean that Brandon Bernard was the actual killer. However, years later, the theory was overturned when Bernard and his new legal team hired chief medical examiner of Galveston County. And he said, even if his lawyers had gotten any reasonable medical examiner, they would have been able to tell them that the bullet shattered the structure of Stacy's brain, meaning that she was dead, even though she could have still been breathing and could have breathed in some soot, she was medically considered dead long before the car was caught on fire, which means that Brandon Bernard did not kill her. It seems like his defense attorneys didn't really believe in his innocence. But it also appears that they didn't even put forth the effort to address what seemed to be now very glaring issues and holes in this case. Even the prosecutor who defended the death penalty in one of his appeals has been writing op-eds. One that she's written that I've read is titled, I helped put an 18-year-old black teen on federal death row and I now think he should live. Some of the things that she cites, which are more you know, social issues are that science tells us that a brain in a young man is not fully developed until he's 25 or 26. So charging an 18 year old would mean that you technically are charging a child. And I have opinions about that and I will leave them till, till we talk about it. But um, Brandon Bernard also, she said, was seen more for his race and less for his youth. And she states that the jurors that supported the death penalty, now that they have the additional information, specifically the information about um, Stacy actually dying from the bullet, they have changed their minds. So basically, this is really a race against time for Brandon Bernard. And like I said, he's set to be executed on December the 10th. An attorney has asked the judge um, to postpone the execution. There are a number of reasons that um, executions have been postponed, one of which that I think is worth noting is that the facility in which Bernard is being held has had several outbreaks of COVID-19. Several attorneys have caught COVID-19, and this is one of the um, locations that we keep hearing about in the news. So if for nothing else, maybe it should be postponed until after the pandemic is under control. But also... If the case is postponed a mere six weeks, the fate of Brandon could be determined by our new president, Joe Biden, who has been openly opposed to the death penalty. Unfortunately, right now, only Donald Trump and federal court intervention can spare Brandon Bernard. Um, Kim Kardashian, who we know, is also backing this case. She feels like Prison life in prison is a, a, a more suitable punishment for him because he had a minor role in this tragic event. The situation seems to be a little grim, um, but we hope that with Kim Kardashian's influence and her connection to the Trump administration, Brandon Bernard will receive a pardon or clemency from Trump 
like Michael Flynn and the 28 other people that he's pardoned or granted clemency during his presidency. We hope that Brandon Bernard will be added to that list as opposed to being added to the list of people who are executed during his administration. But while I'm prayerful, I'm not very hopeful because since capital punishment was reinstated in 2019, this will be the first time in two decades that federal execution has taken place. And during this Trump administration, he has killed more prisoners that are on death row than the government has killed in the last 50 years. Unfortunately, in addition to um, Brandon Bernard, there are four additional people who are also on death row set to be executed before Trump leaves office. You know, um, when we brought up this uh, timeline and we talked about it, you know, are we going to talk about this on the show? Are we not going to talk about this on the show? Um, because, you know, maybe this is too deep um, to talk about. Um, we both felt like, you know, that's why we have this platform um, and we have to go there um, because we didn't want our voices not to be on record speaking up on behalf of this man. And, when you think about the death penalty and you think about those victims, it is very natural to think, you know, hey, even the Bible talks about an eye for an eye. And this is what these people deserve for killing these innocent family, this innocent family. And this is a youth minister that they killed. Um, so, I mean, to me, this case hit home because my husband has been a youth minister and he does ministry now. And I could very well see us stopping at a Walgreens, a CVS, a Walmart somewhere and somebody asking us for a ride home and we would give them a ride home. Uh, I mean, and, and so I feel for this family because that family, although they're Caucasian, could have very well been my family, except for we may have had Harrison in the back seat. And we would have given these people a ride home because that's who we are. And unfortunately, these people ended up being nice, doing God's work, or, or so they thought, and losing their life because of it. So I don't want to um, downplay the fact that two people lost their lives here that weren't doing anything except for really trying to do the right thing. These people that lost their lives, they weren't racist people. They weren't, you know, out to get black people. They weren't, you know, discriminating. They were trying to give these people a ride home. So I don't want to downplay that, but I still can't also ignore the fact that Mr. Bernard wasn't even there when the crime happened. Um, and, should he face the death penalty when he was not the shooter and he wasn't there when the crime was actually committed? Um, so I would agree with uh, Kim Kardashian on this to say, yeah, maybe life would be better than somebody getting this death penalty. But even still, the people that were 17 at the crime, some of them are out now. You know, they've served 20 years and they're out. So we've already convicted and killed the shooter that actually committed the crime. He's been dead since September. So Brandon, who is the, I don't want to say he's the innocent bystander because he wasn't innocent in this situation, but he did not commit the crime of killing these people. 
should he be killed when he was not the killer? And I, I am agreeing with Kim Kardashian in, in that, no, I don't think that he should have, he should be sentenced to death for something that he did not directly do. Um, I also listening to you, Janine, recap everything in terms of this man's history. As a mother, it makes me weep because I try to do the best thing I can for my son, right? Everything is about him and setting him up for success. When I had him in June 3rd of 2019, July 1st, the first auto draft for his college fund came out. Um, you know, I'm, we're, we're looking at these schools and he's 18 months. We're looking at schools and I'm worried about him making sure he has friends, you know, making sure he's socialized, you know, is he speaking enough words? And I, I, I can't help but sit and think about his situation and how different it must have been. And if you're listening to this and you're a parent, I mean, realize, and you probably do already realize that what you do for your children right now whether they're 18 months old or whether they're 13, 14, 15 year olds, that is going to shape them for the rest of their lives. And he was in a home situation where he was set up not to, not to prevail. He was in an abusive situation. He saw his mom have a stroke and his dad, you know, abused his mom even when she was ill I mean, you know, the hardships that he must have gone through. And I don't want to blame all this on her, on his mom because she probably went through a lot to be someone to stay in an abusive situation like that. And for someone who had suffered um, health, uh, health problems at a very early age, when you hear people having heart disease and stroke at, a, at an age where they have very young children, I mean, they their bodies must have taken a toll to get them there. So I don't want to blame everything on her either, but it's a cycle that continues and continues and continues. And then you have a child that doesn't have a way out. And he's not a bad kid despite his circumstances, but he's around the wrong crowd. And he's allowed to be around the wrong crowd because his home situation is not a secure and supportive situation. And so then he's he's forced into this crowd that he thinks is support, but that's getting him deeper and deeper into failure. And now we're at a point where we have a man that's 40 that's only a couple years older than you and I, Janine, that could potentially lose his life. And it's daunting that when, when you're listening to this episode, you will know whether or not he's going to have prevailed and he's living or will he die today? Will he die this Thursday that you're listening to this? So um, so it hits it hits home. And it's, you know, besides speaking out on this platform and urging people to um, support their loved ones and um, making sure that if you volunteer and you really have a heart for the innocent to make sure you are uh, affiliating with um, innocence organizations across your state, there's not a lot we can do. Kim Kardashian luckily has been successful in having the ear of the president. But honestly, Janine, I don't know how successful she's going to be right now because Trump is not focused on helping or leaving the office on a positive note. He's not. I mean, he's still focused on the fact that he lost and he's trying to get, re, you know, votes recounted right now, which to me is, you know, crazy. Uh, I was just telling a friend yesterday, totally off subject, 
but the point is still relevant that as leaders, we have to know when we should move forward and when it's time to take a step back and be a leader in that, hey, someone else is better off leading and taking this position and I'm better off being a support system. And Donald Trump has shown us time and time again, unfortunately, that he is not that leader that can say, hey, my time is coming to a close. I'm going to do the best I can to support the American people. And that means to help transition the next phase of leadership. I pray to God that he has some compassion that Kim Kardashian and the rest of the activists can get his ear and that at least he postpones this execution until somebody else can look at this case and review and make some more uh, informed decisions um, come 2021. I agree. And I think that I think it deserves to be um, reiterated that he was just 18. Um, And 18 can be a senior in high school, a junior in high school even, or, you know, a freshman in college. And there are all of these things where you're like, I'm just coming to adulthood, right? So like, I'm I'm a new adult, so to speak. And as new anything, we cannot expect people to be experts at it. And I don't think that, I don't want to say that his role in this case was minor or in this murder was minor, but I do think that it's fair to give him the same sentence that the other people that had the same level of participation in the event. If not more level, if not more level. Exactly. So the other three young men outside of the trigger man, they all will see the light of day again, right? And that's not even what he's asking for. He's just asking to live. He's not asking to be free. He's not asking to to have a date to be released, even though I feel like he has the right to. But that's not what he's asking for. The only thing that he's asking for is to survive. That's it. He knows that he'll spend the, the rest of his natural life in prison, but he's okay with that. And I feel like I'm more comfortable with that, but I would be more comfortable if... They said time served and they let him out. The matter is, he didn't really kill anyone. He made bad decisions and hung out with the wrong people and went along with his friends. And and as you said, Nicole, he had a bad home environment. And unfortunately, too many of our Black young men get caught up in that vicious cycle. And this is one that I can honestly say, I don't believe that he deserves this. And I just hope that... Donald Trump adds him to the list of 28 pardons rather than adding him to the list of executions. I mean, the people he's pardoning have done crimes. <laughs> I mean, oh, like real crimes, like real crimes. He's pardoning them because they're his friends. And to me, it's it is um, piss poor leadership when you decide to cherry pick your friends out of a group and you don't want to look at anybody else and what they've done. Or say, hey, you know what? You've served your time. It's time for you to get out. He should be doing more than trying to pardon just his friends. And that, honestly, it makes me sick to my stomach that you have somebody that has served over 20 years for something that they didn't directly do and that may be losing his life. But you have somebody that has like grand scandals across the U.S., and you pardon them after they've been in jail for a couple of weeks? I mean, give me a break. Like, why is no one checking them? 
Why is no one checking the president? And Nicole, I just I just want to reiterate something that you said about the the things that he has pardoned people for, right? So for anyone who's interested and they're, you know, a, a nerd like me and wants to go check it out, if you go to the United States Department of Justice and you look up the Office of Pardon Attorney, you can see the list of people and the crimes that they committed that President Trump pardoned, right? And I'm I'm not going to go through it. Maybe we'll um, post a link on our Facebook page. But some of them are murder, assault. One that stood out to me was violation of the White Slave Traffic Act. Someone was pardoned for that. Some people were pardoned for illegal gambling and things that are a little bit more minor. But premeditated murder, that's different. Um, it's very different than wire fraud, which some of these people are on here for, you know, smaller, what we consider white collar crimes, but some people are on here for crimes, international crimes. So again, his list of pardons is not in a specific direction. It varies the gamut of everything from minor white collar crimes to major first degree premeditated murder. So um, if that wasn't heavy enough, Janine, let's talk through some scenarios. Okay. Would you like to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. And this uh, this comes from a friend of the podcast, and um, she says, Nicole and Janine, thanks for addressing this topic. I was reading about cases of death row for my dissertation and came across the case of Anthony Graves, who is now um, Smart Justice Initiative Manager for the ACLU Texas. Just to recap, Graves was convicted in 1994 for killing six people in Somerville in 1992. He spent 12 years on death row, mostly in, in solitary confinement. There was no motive or physical evidence connecting Anthony Graves to the crime scene. In lieu of physical evidence, the conviction was based on the testimony of Robert Carter, who later admitted he had committed the crime. He has since been executed. His conviction was overturned by Federal Court of Appeals in 2006. However, he wasn't released until October 27, 2010. Graves was awarded $1.4 million for time spent on death row. Anthony now writes about his inhumane experience living in a nine by 12 cell in solitary confinement without any human interaction because death row had greater than 500 men waiting to be murdered, bathing, using the restroom and dressing in front of guards. He was told when to sleep, when to eat. And ultimately he would have been told when to die each day he describes as the worst day of his life, but he just relived it over and over again. He had no counseling and no rehabilitation. He heard a man put a sheet around his neck and then the man set himself on fire. One man ate his own eyeball. So she then poses this question. So is death row actually humane? Why are families and the imprisoned not provided counseling? Why, if there are so many on death row who are later found to be innocent, is there no rehabilitation? What are your thoughts, ladies? Oh, that's a lot of questions. Okay, so I'll start off with the first question. Is death row humane? This is my personal opinion. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. I'm not in the criminal justice system, but I am a human, right? Um, and I really don't think that there's anything humane about our justice system to be very honest, I don't. Um, I think that our justice system is based on revenge rather than justice. 
And I think that we as a culture um, have this throwaway mentality. When we don't want to deal with a certain segment of our population, we like to throw them away. That's not just people who committed crimes. That's people who are disabled. That's people who are mentally ill. And that's people who, you know, we deem not useful to society anymore. We throw them away because it's inconvenient for us to handle them and deal with them. And I have a problem with that. And, you know, oftentimes I wonder, and I think I said this to you, Nicole, before, if it will change in our lifetime. I think that one of the biggest downfalls of our society was making for-profit prisons Mm -hmm. because people are literally invested in other people's criminality. If there were no for-profit prisons, would this, you know, prison pipeline be what it is today? And I, in my, you know, limited knowledge of this, would venture to say no. Um, When, you know, we're a capitalist society and when people see where they can make money, what do they do? They try to make more money. And when humans become the capital, there's always a problem. Um, I don't think that our system is set up for rehabilitation. I think that our system is set up to make the rich richer and to keep a certain class of people and a certain demographic of people oppressed. And I don't think I would venture to say that I think that it starts before people get into the system, right? I think that it starts in, you know, the same education and the same um, conflict resolution skills and the same coping skills um, that we try to instill in prisoners. Why are we not trying to instill that in our children in areas where they're more susceptible to go to prison? And then I think that we sit and evaluate what our system does, right? Technically, you get into the system, you know, you go into a facility, you stay in that facility with limited interaction with human beings, with limited interaction with anything that is going to help you become a better person. And then basically, they enslave you. And I say that because you're not getting paid, you're not getting any exchange for your services, and they continue to make more money off of you. I mean, it's really ridiculous in the U.S. specifically. Right. And this is something that I've, I found in my research. We incarcerate more of our population than any other country in the world. Almost two thirds of criminals that are arrested are rearrested for a new crime within three years of their release. If that doesn't tell you that our prison system isn't rehabilitating people, I don't know what will. If our prison system rehabilitated people, the the rate of recidivism would be not two thirds. It would be very, very minimal. One of the things that also sticks out to me is in other countries, there are systems for people to be rehabilitated. And yes, you can tell me that like, you know, certain prisons have education systems and certain prisons have, you know, you know, work rehabilitation systems, but it's not across the board right? It's based on state and very few federal prisons have any real um, assemblance of of rehabilitation program. But there are other countries that do, right? In Ethiopia, they have a financial literacy program so that they encourage prisoners to come out and start a co-op business, right? In um, Sylvania, the prisoners go to, to prison on the weekends. They can work during the week and make real money, 
in in society and go to prison and check in on the weekends right um in uruguay there's a rehabilitation center now you know south america is known for its questionable um questionable reforms but in uruguay there's a, a rehabilitation center um that they have that has reduced recidivism down to 10 percent, where the rest of the country it's 60 percent. so there are things that work in poland they pay every prisoner minimum wage very very different than the united states the average prisoner is working to to get to i think the max is like a dollar and 15 cent a day the max that's if they're getting paid these are still human beings and i think that the concept that we throw these humans into a cage like an animal and throw away the key and expect them to come out and act like a normal contributing member of society i think it's asinine that's just my opinion so um i agree um, I don't think that the prison system is humane, um, but even if you're not serving time to get out, meaning you have a crime that only gives you eight to 10 years and you need to get out. Yeah, those people should be rehabilitated. But even if you're on death row and you did the crime, you should probably at least be given some type of counseling. And I think that the families that are dealing with people in prison should also be given some rehabilitation and some counseling. I mean, think about it. Um, these people go to the prison, they have families. Um, Bernard has a, a daughter, I believe, family yeah. too. And so what are they doing? You know, they're going to have to deal with potentially the permanent loss of their father. They've already dealt with the loss of their father because he's been in prison their whole life, at least their childhood. So what what was put in place for them? And so I think that, um, especially as you named all these other countries, Janine, that has done a much better job than America in terms of rehabilitating people, especially people that don't create uh, don't commit violent crimes. If you are going to get out, like why not let people that are nonviolent work and then check in on the weekends? Why do we not have systems in place that actually make sure people get an education and make sure people get a trade so that when they get out of jail, they have something they can do? Um, now you get out of prison after being there. Some prison systems will allow you to get a degree or some education. Some won't. And so it's, it's not universal across the board. You get out, you have no skill, you have no education, you have nowhere to go. What are they supposed to do? So, of course, you know, three years later, you're right back in the system because you have not been taught a skill, um, a livable skill to make a wage off of. What do you expect if somebody goes to prison for selling drugs and they have no they've not learned any knowledge? They haven't gotten any counseling to learn how to mature in their thought process. Of course, they're going to continue selling drugs. I mean, what do we expect? So I do think that we need to do more with um rehabilitation in prison um as as well as making sure that people get some type of skill to live to have a livable wage when they get out but if we're talking specifically about death row um the way that this graves case is describing how basically he was tortured every day um almost described as a modern day slavery i mean he was not given a fair trial he was convicted of death based on the testimony of a killer that was more believable than him. He had no physical evidence or motive to connect him to the case, but yet 
a jury, an all Caucasian jury, still found him guilty because they believed the word of a, another man over his word and he did not have adequate representation. How many times are we going to let this cycle continue? And that's, that's, I think, the issue that I have with death row, right? Death row is so permanent. And I think that to have something so permanent attached to such a flawed system, it just is super eerie to me. And the fact mm-hmm. that it's gone on so long in this country, I, I mean, it's baffling to me, right? So how many times have we seen someone be on death row or, or wrongfully convicted of a crime? And how many times have we seen people come back and admit later that their testimony was false? How many times have we seen, not for nothing, the Central Park situation, right? What is it? The Central Park's five? Yep. I can't help but think time and time again, I mean, even with with Brandon Bernard's case, there's information that comes out that gives you a different, I mean, post-trial, that gives you a very different perspective of exactly what happened. And if you think that people should be put to death or even put in the hole, as you put it, you know, on death row to the point where they're losing their minds. I mean, you have got to be at a, a, a very low mental point to eat your own eyeballs, right? Right. Like even to dig your eyeball halfway out, you have to be at a at, at an all time low. Like I can't even listen. I fell and I sprained my ankle and I was in pain. Like I wouldn't purposely sprain my ankle, so I'm not gonna definitely not gonna purposely pluck my own eyeball out and eat it. Right. So you have to think of what a low point you must be at mentally to go through with something so vile, right? And it's and it we see this time and time again, but we keep pointing to the individuals and we keep pointing to the victims of our justice system. And I will call inmates victims of our justice system as opposed to trying to change the system. And I think that, you know, I without giving, you know, too much of my personal view, I'm kind of with President Biden in the fact that I'm not sure that death penalty is the way to go. Right. I'm not sure about that because it's a very permanent solution to something that no one will ever know is true or not. Right. The only people who know about what actually happened during the crime, any crime, are the victim, the perpetrator and God. That's it. So it's it starts off as a flawed system. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't um, be imprisoned for or punished for their crimes. I'm just saying we really need to examine what our punishment looks like and really examine is the same punishment that we put or the same rules and laws and punishments that we put in place when our country was founded, have they evolved to where our country is today? And I would venture to say that they have not. And I think that There's no way or no one that is going to convince me that putting a human being in a cage is humane, specifically when you put someone in solitary confinement. Think about it like this, Nicole, and not to make it, you know, more personal to anyone, but think about it like this. We are going crazy in quarantine. And most of us are not isolated by ourselves. Imagine spending a year in a hole by yourself and the only person 
that you interact with is someone that is telling you what to do, how to do it, and when to do it, and you're eating and sleeping pretty much in the dark, imagine that. Imagine that if, if this quarantine at any point has made you feel alone and isolated, imagine what it would be like for an indefinite amount of time spending in a 10 by 10 cell by yourself with limited light and no interaction with humans. I don't think anyone is signing up for that, Nicole. Mm-mm. No, no, they're not. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking like, do I believe in the death penalty? Right. As a, as a Christian, I don't believe that it's our job to determine when life ends. I, I just don't. But at the same time, I always try to put myself in the minds of the victim's family, you know, what they're going through. And I could honestly say that I, I'm probably much more of a forgiving person than most people are. That wouldn't give me, that wouldn't help me. That would not allow me to sleep better at night knowing that somebody else is going to be killed because my loved one was killed. I mean, I think that they would be wrong. But I don't know if I want that type of eye for an eye. Like, I would not sleep well now knowing, okay, the death of my loved one has now caused another death. Um, that that would haunt me forever if I had a family member that passed away brutally from a crime like that. So, I mean, everybody's different when it comes to that and what they think justice looks like. You know, is life in prison um, justice? I don't know. You know, is death row for somebody that admittedly killed somebody else justice? I don't know. For me, and, and if it were my family, I would not consider death row justice. Um, a lot of people that argue um, for the death penalty say, you know, people shouldn't be able to live their lives or um, have the option to get out and live their lives if they have killed someone else. And I mean, I get that. Um, but wouldn't some good out of the death of a loved one be more justice than having that person die or spend the rest of their life in jail? And then other people may argue, you know, tax dollars are paying for people to sit in jail. So if they've killed somebody, why do I now have to pay tax dollars to feed, clothe, and house somebody that's a murderer? it's more expensive to keep somebody in jail for life than to just put them on death row and and uh, kill them. Not really. Like the stuff that you have to do, first of all, they're going to be in jail for 20 to 30 years before they even get out, you know, put on death row. I mean, sentenced to die. And then, you know, the electric chair and all the things and all the people and all the stuff you have to do, that's not a cheap process. Versus giving someone life in prison. So people think that it's cheaper to kill people, but no, not after 20 to 35 years, plus the amount of legality you have to go through if you're on death row versus not, plus the actual, you know, injection and those proceedings and a medical doctor being there, that's not cheaper. Okay. It's not cheaper than life in prison. So if people think that, think again. And you know what's even cheaper, Nicole? Rehabilitation. That part. Education. It's a lot cheaper to give people the tools that they need to be 
to to be able to come out and be contributing members of society. Again, I'm not for the throwing people away and I'm not for the death penalty. Um, I think that there are some exceptions, I guess, to, to how I feel like, you know, people who are self-admitted serial killers who like to, you know, string the police on a wild goose chase and tell them, you know, location by location. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, um, you know, people who kill for, for fun, I guess. Um, but even then I just, I just wonder like, is death the way to go? Or is that something that should be treated by a psychiatrist? They should be treated by a psychiatrist. Some of those people have literally psychological issues and they should be treated by a psychiatrist. I was just going to th- say that when you mentioned serial killers, like most of the time they're going to have, you know, antisocial personality disorder. There's something that needs to be treated. Um, I don't think those people should necessarily be put to death either. But like you said, Janine, I, there are exceptions to the rule per se, but for the most part, I feel like it should be a unanimous decision about these people being put to death and they should automatically, I feel like if you get sentenced to death, you should automatically have another trial. (laughs) I mean, you should automatically, it should be like double unanimous. I mean, you're taking somebody's life. This is a very serious matter. Um, And I think that uh, we need to take it as such. Um, The other piece I want to mention before we move on to to your scenario, Janine, is that yes, rehabilitation is cheaper, but it's cheaper to be preventative than reactionary, right? So people talk about, you know, as a doctor, you know, I'm here to, you know, help people get through pregnancy safely, right? But that's once they're high risk, they come to me. So let's take steps to prevent them from being high risk in the first place, right? Um, And to prevent them from going uh, to jail in the first place. But, you know, these, you know, high school to prison pipelines are real. And if we would put more money into our education systems and to making sure that people that are in low income communities have resources, then we can rehabilitate these communities so that we don't have people that are 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds trying to rob grocery stores or rob people and kill them. I mean, this Bernard case is just like so many others, right? This child could have been rehabilitated. They could have put resources in the community. He could have gone to uh, after school programs. He could have had a mentor. He could have gone to college. But yet we didn't want to put the money or time or resources in his community. And, and now look where we are. Same thing with the Anthony Graves case. Now look where we are. So we need to be more proactive especially with our youth. And if you're a parent, it starts at home. You have to take time to invest. And we always talk about, you know, us pursuing our goals and making sure we're living our best lives. But once you have kids, your best life is their best life. You have to make sure that you're doing things that are going to get your children out of the high school to prison pipeline and into being successful members of the community going to college, even if they don't go to college, being nonviolent and having some type of respectable career. That is your job as a parent to make sure your kids are mentally healthy. So it starts at home. It does. Okay. So this was written into us and said, hi ladies. I believe that my best friend was wrongfully convicted of rape charges. I understand that false rape accusations are more rare than most people believe, but I know my friend 
as well as the details of the case, and some things just aren't right. My friend is currently in prison because when we were 15, he was accused of rape by one of our coworkers at the our coworker said that he raped her when they were closing one night. In addition to the timeline being off, there was no rape kit or any DNA evidence confirming this young lady's allegations. The entire case was based on time card evidence and the alleged victim's testimony. There are several reasons that I'm suspicious. One, this is not the first time that this young lady has accused someone of rape, and she has also retracted rape allegations in the past, blaming it on a, quote, misunderstanding. The second reason is he is a young Black man. And while I don't blindly support young Black men because I'm a Black woman, we live in a very small town in Alabama, and it is not uncommon for Black men to be wrongfully accused of things. Another reason is my friend is gay, and while he's not publicly out, I have known that he's gay since we were children, so it's a little surprising and out of character that he would rape a female. This all happened when we were 15, as I said, but the trial dragged out until he was 18, so he was tried as an adult. This then changed his sentence from what would have been 11 months of probation to 20 years in prison which is the maximum sentence for second-degree rape. Several lawyers have reviewed his case, and they all say the same thing. The judge is notoriously prejudiced, and, the key, ev and key evidence that could have um, gotten my best friend off was considered inadmissible in court. While I'm preparing for my second master's, my friend is preparing for his fourth appeal. Is there anything I can do to help him? Because I was also 15 at the time, my parents didn't really want me to get wrapped up into the case. But now that I'm grown, I can't stand by and continue to watch this unfold. I can't help but think that if my friend had just been openly gay, this wouldn't have happened. Is there anything that I can do? If so, please let me know as I am not all that familiar with the legal system, and I just know that my best friend doesn't deserve to be in prison at all for something that he did not commit. Ooh, I mean, one, we're not legal experts either. We can only give you our opinions. But if there are legal experts that are listening and want to, you know, drop their professional opinion, um, or if you're in Alabama and you're an attorney and you want to help with this case, you know, pl please reach out to us. Um, please email us at ohthatsdbwc at gmail.com because we do want to connect people and give them the resources they need. But unfortunately, we're not we're not attorneys. So I can only give you my, um, you know, my personal opinion. My personal opinion is, you know, one, well, I have some questions first. And that's, you know, one, do you have all the legal documents with this case? Like, have you been following this case closely? Are you the person that's been in communication with your friend? And two, have you talked to your friend about making sure that people know that he's gay? And if you're in communication with your friend, then the next steps would be, you need to get another attorney. And perhaps you need to get a civil rights attorney that's not in the state of Alabama, because if every single attorney is saying the same thing, then 
that doesn't make any sense. Attorneys want the spotlight and or they want money. So the fact that I can tell just listening to the case that your friend did not have paid expertise, okay? He must have had somebody that was court appointed. Everybody's saying the same thing because they don't they're not they know they're not going to get paid for this case, right? They're not going to take on this type of case without getting the the dollar amount behind the time. It's unfortunate, but it happens. You know, so have you contacted the ACLU for the state of Alabama and are um, have you contacted a civil rights uh, attorney that may not be in that state, but that is also uh, licensed to practice in the state of Alabama? Because to, to have somebody that's 15 committing a crime and still be tried as an adult at 18, make it make sense. It make doesn't sense. make sense. And um, I, I don't think you could legally do that. It doesn't make sense. And then you have somebody that is not uh, a reliable victim. And I say that because if she has time after time accused people of rape, she's a serial accuser, and then she's retracted her statements later on. Well, there's something to be said about that. And you're 15 and you're working at a fast food restaurant. Where's everybody else at? Where are the witnesses involved? You know, obviously we only know what you wrote in. So we don't know the details of this case, which is why I'm asking, do you know the details of this case? Like, do you actually have a copy of the details of this case? And if you do, you should contact an attorney. That's a civil rights attorney or contact the ACLU because it doesn't make sense if there's no other witnesses at a fast food restaurant. And this is a major fast food restaurant. Where's the manager? Where is the manager? So you got my word against yours. That's not a strong case. So to me, this is obviously racially motivated. And if he's 15, I'm just thinking if I had a 15-year-old son, I would be lawyered up. We'd be out of there. Like this wouldn't be a case, especially with somebody that's a serial accuser. What is she getting from this? So um, that is my advice. That's what I, I would think you should do. Um, and like I say, if you're listening and you happen to be an attorney that can give a little bit more specific guidance, that would be amazing. Um but I would start there. I mean, to reach out to your friend, um, talk to him about what's already been done and what hasn't been done. Talk to him about what attorneys have reviewed the case and what, what, who has not. And then contact the ACLU to see if they can get a copy of the records of the case and see what they can do and or a civil rights attorney that may not be in the state. Because dirty attorneys can be like dirty cops, honey. Um, people can get paid off and people don't want to get their hands dirty. So um, this is one that's a long haul. And how invested are you in this person? What's your motivation behind that? I agree with everything that you said, Nicole. One of the things that I would like to point out is how invested is she in this case, right? Um, and I'm not saying that you should let your, you know, let your best friend just suffer through this alone, but there is an end in sight, right? And I'm assuming that he served a large majority of his sentence because this happened when you all were 15 and you stated that you're working on your second master's degree. So I would think that he would be coming out of prison sometime soon anyway. Right. Um, unfortunately, personally, I don't really think, and again, like Nicole stated, we are not legal experts. Um, I don't think that there's anything that you can personally do, but it sounds like um, your best friend needs a new attorney or needs a new legal team. And maybe, um, you know, you can finance this team for him or help find people that can finance. I mean, 
people put up a GoFundMe for a whole lot less. So, you know, maybe you raise the funds so that he can get, you know, real legitimate legal representation. Um, at least someone that could maybe move the case out from under this this judge, right? If everyone, like Nicole said, if everyone knows that this judge is um, prejudiced, so to speak, why do we think that we're going to get a fair case out of him? I'm just curious. Like, I, you know, not to not to make light of your situation, but, you know, we know the systems that we have to work around, right? Um, specifically as African-American, and I feel like you know them as well because you stated that you live in a small town in Alabama and you know, we just are aware that there are things that we hurdles that we have to overcome that other people don't have to overcome. So, you know, maybe you put him in touch with um, some some sort of innocence project. Right. Um, I was looking up looking up things for the episode. And one of the things that I came across was the innocencenetwork.org, where they're literally lawyers and uh, legal professionals that work pro bono. And this particular website will help you find people that will work on cases in your area. So again, that's innocencenetwork.org. I would, I would suggest that you log on and see if there's somebody that's willing to help with the case. You would be surprised. There are a lot of lawyers who are still committed to justice, not just making money. So, you know, I would suggest that you log on to that or, you know, like Nicole said, reach out to the ACLU. Um, there are resources to help people who are kind of caught in this hamster wheel of our justice system. So, you know, please, please reach out to them. And then also, I would just tell you to ask your friend how he feels that you can best help him, right? Because, it seems to me that for whatever reason, he's very cautious about being open with his sexuality. Because for me, if it were me, the first thing that I would say when I was going to be convicted of rape is, I don't even like girls. I'm not even interested in women. For whatever reason, he's not come forward with that, right? So I would caution you to, one, I wouldn't say out your friend, because that's just not something that is productive for anyone. So but wait a minute, but that would be productive in this situation. I don't think so because it could, you know, who knows? It could open up a whole nother can of worms. We don't know what kind of situation he is in now. You don't know what he's trying to pursue now. And again, they're, they're in a very small town in Alabama and we don't know what kind of social situation that could present for him once he is out of prison. Right. So or in prison too. That's true. That's sure, true. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want to tell her to like out him because while we see this from the outside looking in as something that could potentially help the case, there's clearly a reason or a thought process that's causing him to not, to not be open and forthcoming with that information. So I would caution against that, but I would say, ask him, you know, ask him, say, how is it that you feel like I could best help you? I know that this is not something that I, or I don't believe that this is something that you've done. I don't believe that you should sit here and pay for something that you haven't done. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you, you know, we always want to help people, right? We always want to like, hey, like, let's round up the Calvary and help this person. But in this particular situation, I think that it's best that we figure out how is best, how we can help him the way that, that he wants to be helped. Um, because like I said, it seems that he should be, getting closer to the end of his sentence, if I'm not mistaken, based on the timeline, how you laid it out in your letter. Um, so I would just say that. And then I think that also we have to be mindful that, you know, 
while we have come, and this is not specifically for, for you, Belinda, but th- but I think that one thing that we have to be mindful of as, you know, as Black people, while we have come very, very, very far, right, there are still so many stories that I hear about African-Americans, specifically African-American males, who get caught up in a system because of misrepresentation of facts from our Caucasian counterparts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say we just have to still be very cognizant of this, right? Like we have to be, and I'm not saying that we're living in the day of Emmett Till. That's not what I'm saying. But I I, I think that we still have to be very cognizant of this. I have a, a very close friend that this happened to, and he spent a hefty bid in prison, right? And thankfully now he's, you know, a contributing member of society and he works in the nonprofit space and he's amazing but he was wrongfully accused of something because he was a black man and it was easy for him to be used as a scapegoat right so i i just would caution everyone to say like be mindful of the environment that we're living in be mindful of the times and the racial tension and i know that it sounds bad and it's negative and we hate to bring it up but it's a real thing and just just you know keep your eyes open and to Belinda, like, you know, hopefully your friend is is exonerated of his crimes. But if for whatever reason he's not, once he gets out of prison, this is something that he can work on on the back end to get it removed from his record. But yeah, I would say just ask him how you can help him and then reach out to some some free resources that you may have access to. Okay, so Janine, what did you learn new this week other than all the stuff we just talked about? I know, right? Um well, this isn't any brighter. So here, here you go. So when I was doing research for this case, I realized that, you know, I, I was looking up why, you know, we reinstated the death penalty and we resumed executions. But I found out something interesting. This is the first time since 1889, and I did not misread that, it's 1889, before 1900, that a federal execution has been carried out by an outgoing administration after they lost the election. This is the first time since 1889. Let that sink in for a second. Mm. Okay, so my learn something new is that since 1973, there's been more than 170 people who have been wrongly convicted, sentenced to death in the U.S., and then exonerated. And currently we have 52 women on death row, mostly in Southern states. And um, uh, that brought me to do a little bit more research on women on death row. And that brought me across the case of Lena Baker. And some of you may not know who that is, but she was uh, one of the first black women in modern history that Um, actually got the death penalty. She was 44 years old. She was a maid um, and she got the electric chair in 1945 for killing Ernest Knight, who was her boss that she had a sexual relationship with. She shot him in self-defense. He imprisoned her, wouldn't let her leave, threatened to shoot if she left. She finally grabbed the gun and shot him when he held held up a metal bar to strike her. This is what she said in her testimony. 60 years later, the Georgia Board of Pardons and Parole granted her family an official proclamation pardoning her, stating that 
she had acted in self-defense. But at that point, it's too little, too late. It's too late. It's too late. So as again, why um, the death penalty is something that should be taken very seriously and not lightly because, you know, it's just people can be innocent. Even if there's proof that looks like they're guilty, um, until we know all the facts, we're not those people. We weren't there. And for us to make a judgment call on somebody's life is just it's just inhumane on a lot of levels. And there's a lot of people that studies have shown, hey, there's over 300 people that probably got the death sentence and they didn't deserve it. I mean, that's a real that's a real study. The National Academy of Sciences states that as many as 300 U.S. inmates sentenced to death over the last 30 year period probably were innocent. Learned that new, too. Mm. Just a shame. It is a shame. All right. I guess we need a little bit of motivation after that. Yes, please. Please. So our motivational moment is uh, a quote from Audrey Hepburn. She said, nothing is impossible. The word itself says I'm possible. So whether you're dealing with a wrongful conviction of a family member or you're struggling with school, work, marriage, or just life, don't give up. Stay focused, creative, and most importantly, stay in prayer. Until we meet again, pray, work, slay, and show off your melanated excellence. Bye. Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations is produced by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or where you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations on IG at Oh, That's Deep BWC. Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.